Please be seated. Well, we've uh, studied for the last several weeks Ezra and uh, his ministry. I'd like to do a, uh, a summary sermon to recap. Uh, I'd like to do that actually by reading together with you from Nehemiah chapter 1. Not that Ezra is mentioned here, but that he is the, uh, Nehemiah is the, 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 the third um, great figure in this uh, section of God's word. Uh, we've considered Zerubbabel, Ezra, and I'd like to at least introduce you to Nehemiah uh, as I make two summary points reviewing all that we have learned and all that we have seen about uh, serving the Lord with a passion for his cause in, this, in his city. Um, let's, uh, let's read together from Nehemiah chapter 1. Again, this is not an exposition. This is a review sermon. But I would like to uh, set before you something of the character of this man whom we've, whom we've just barely gotten to know from uh, previous week. So here, Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, and that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who'd escaped, who had survived the captivity. Excuse me, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there, in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, let your ear... Be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. And therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, what do you request? 
Our Father in heaven, we pray that we too would have a passion for the cause of God, that new Jerusalem, the church which Christ itself, himself has purchased with his own blood. Oh, Father, may we learn some wise lessons from strong men in difficult times that we too would not be discouraged but persevere serving in the way that you have appointed as we have opportunity in order that you may have glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever. Amen. Uh, if you mention the church to any group of Christians, I expect you might be likely to get something of a mixed response. The church, well, some might like the church for this or some might like it for that. Others may say, well, while they, don't, while they do love Jesus, they don't love the church. Newsweek magazine picked up on this trend a couple years ago in an article entitled, Forget the Church, Follow Jesus. Um, well, Jesus loves his church. He died for it, and he ever lives to intercede for it. He is going to return for it. Jesus loves his church. And I know it's not always easy for us to do the same. But surely it can be done. Paul, for example, began his first letter to the Corinthians saying, I always thank God for you. He concludes that letter. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. And in between, he says, you are a complete mess. <laughs> it is a sorrowful letter in many ways, as Paul describes it later. It's hard to believe that such a church planted by the apostle himself could have so many terrible problems. But the point is that even for that church, Paul could thank God for one of the messiest churches in the Bible. Paul deeply loved one of the messiest churches in the Bible. And that's a good reminder. It's a model for us to follow as well. And this is incredibly practical for us together here. Uh, the fact is, throughout my adult life, the church has meant so much to me. Not that there haven't been disappointments, but I know that not everyone's had the same experience but the church has been very good and very special. You cannot find friends anywhere like you can find here who care about your soul, who pray for you, who desire you to grow in grace, to be a better person in Christ, to encourage you when you're down, to love you more than flesh and blood, to forgive you when you have messed up. I am thankful for the people in the church that don't hold things against me and my past not dictate my future, but rather have forgiven, loved, served, and encouraged me. I am thankful that people can come here to this place and find love and nourishment and acceptance. And such has been the blessing to me of the people who have loved the church and have given themselves for the church like Jesus did. Now, this is something that the church today needs to return to more and more. I feel like in the last generation or so, the, the, the Christian family has experienced something of a revival in Christian culture that's wonderful and, and highly necessary. The hearts of the fathers are turning back to the children and the children to the fathers, and that needed to happen. And a great many Christians are now interested in how to nourish and cherish their wives and raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's wonderful. There's been a great increased emphasis on the importance of the Christian family I'm sad to say that I still think that less emphasis has been placed on God's family, the church. I think that does need to change. It needs to be a revival of passion, of interest, uh, and of devotion to the church. Although we 
are, generally speaking, related to family by blood. We are united to the family of God by Christ's blood, a bond that goes far deeper and lasts far longer than anything in this life. I've heard, anyway, that the giant redwood trees in California actually have shallow roots. If you can confirm or deny this, please let me know after the service. Um, How, then, can these massive trees stay strong and not topple over if they don't have deep roots? The answer is because the redwood trees are connected together at the root. They literally are members of one another. Well, as Christians, when we are similarly rooted together in Christ, connected to one another, we find just tremendous strength and stability in this life and are able to grow together to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But to enjoy this blessing, we need to learn how to follow the Redeemer and how to live out a risky faith. That is ultimately what the books of Ezra, which we have studied, and Nehemiah, which we've just barely grazed, uh, teach the people of God. They say, look, this, this is God's plan. Uh, uh, Ari Van Eyck last week preached to us of love for Zion, uh, love for the church of God. But uh, Nehemiah here is showing us, Ezra has shown us, Zerubbabel has shown us in his way, that to do this is actually very hard work. And we need, to do, we need to follow the Redeemer, and we need to live out a risky faith. These are the two things that we have seen in our study, which I would like to summarize for you this evening as we review what we've learned. First, following the Redeemer. In our studies over the last several months, we've learned about uh, two men who had a passion for God, that he should be glorified in the world through his people. Those men were, of course, Zerubbabel and Ezra. There's one more man that we just read about briefly a few weeks ago and uh, who's introduced to us here at this uh, chapter that I just read to you at greater length, a man named Nehemiah who's going to carry on his own struggle in advancing the cause of God. These three men had something important in common. They all had an unusual passion for the glory of God in his people. They, They saw... The church of God, such as it was at the time, was in a terribly weakened state and that God's glory was suffering because of it. God was not being worshipped as he should. God's people were not the holy nation that they had called them to be. God's cause was a disgrace among the nations. You know, it's easy to look at the, at the state of things and say, uh, what hope is there? It's easy to complain about the church, right? Look, look at its weakness. Look at the state it's in. Look how, dis- how, how dishonorable it is before the nations and to the glory of God. Well, all three of these men experienced that disappointment. They, they wanted so much more. In the book of First Chronicles, almost certainly written by Ezra, by the way, we read about the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times, who knew what Israel ought to do. And in every generation, this is one of our greatest needs. Our times are so confusing or tumultuous. The cause of God seems always to be languishing and decline, or if not ruin. The people of God seem to be chasing their tails. They don't know which way to go. They don't know how to make any progress. There's a lack of prudent, wise, godly leadership. Oh, that we had men of understanding who understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. Well, this is written to tell us, to teach us the lessons, the stories about three such men. 
called by God, gifted by God with an understanding of the times, who knew what Israel ought to do and who had the boldness to carry it out. These were not academics in think tanks writing white papers about how to bring reform among the people of God. These are three men who went out and did it, who risked their lives through great struggle, who saw great success for the cause of God in the world and not without a few scars. I'll also point out that the whole... The whole work, Ezra and Nehemiah, the, 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 the work ends on an uncertain note. Uh, the final chapter, Nehemiah goes home, he comes back, and, and, and things are falling apart again. Uh, as if to say, look, what's going to happen when Nehemiah is gone? What, what is the next generation going to do? That's why this was written for future generations. God's men have been serving God's people well, and it's right for the historians to go back and investigate and see how they did it and write their, write their tales. But, but this is not for historical interest, people. This is for very practical purposes for future generations because the times are now in the hand of the readers. The work has fallen to others. What now? That's the point of the book. And I pointed out to you, this is not written for the history of Zerubbabel, the history of Ezra, the history of Nehemiah merely. It's written because all of those men want others now to take up the burden, their burden, for God's cause, relying on God's strength to labor for God's people through great struggle to see great success. These things are written for our admonition, for our instruction. They they, they saw Zion, the glorious city of God, uh, a ruin. God's cause, a laughingstock. God's people, like sheep without a shepherd, confused, disorganized. Oh, it's easy to complain. But what are, what are we to do? Enemies without, enemies within. It's like every man is for himself. Everyone's looking out for his own interest. Well, I, these were distressing times, and people had to live. I mean, what are they going to eat? What are they going to drink? What are they going to wear? But then you see, God again and again raises up a redeemer, someone who's able to build up Zion. In every generation, he raises up one who says, Now, children, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? I tell you, we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to you. The prophets, uh, 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 Zechariah and Haggai, chiming in, saying the same thing. You know, the reason why you're having so so many troubles in your own personal lives is because you haven't prioritized what I've told you to be doing. And so what we need ultimately, you see, is a shepherd for the sheep, a man whom the Lord has raised up and put his hand on to be a repairer of the breach. We need a redeemer we can follow, a man who will lead us in what we need to do in this generation. Clearly, we are not among a remnant of Jews seeking to continue the work of laying stones in the city of Jerusalem, but no matter. That whole experience was just a miniature training exercise to prepare God's people in future generations for real work, for real struggle unto real success forever. All of this was written to give us lessons to prepare us to follow our Redeemer. In Ezra's day, God's glory in the world was centered around a city where God dwelt in the midst of his people at a temple. Nowadays, the temple of God has a brand new location. Where is the temple of God today, I ask you? Well, it says that, uh, you know, we, we are individually a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, it also says that ye are the temple of God. The 
place where he dwells by his spirit. Or the John calls the church, the bride of the Lamb, New Jerusalem. And it is New Jerusalem that is now the center of God's cause in the world. Okay? So uh, this little miniature training exercise about how to follow the Redeemer uh, bravely in difficult times, uh, what I'm saying is that was written for us. All these things are written for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are to remember how Christ is advancing his kingdom and purposes in the world today and to devote ourselves to follow him and joining in this labor. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How does Christ advance his dominion over the kingdom of evil in this world? What in God's plan is Christ going to do to despoil the very gates of hell and build up the glory of God in the earth? Answer? Christ will build his church. And this is what we are to be passionate now, not laying stones in some forgotten city, but to be as living stones building up new Jerusalem, a city that God will forever glorify. Is the building of the Church of Christ uh, important? Well, it is that which overcomes the evil thraldom in this world. This is why we should be passionate about following the Redeemer and joining in this important work, understanding the times and what Israel ought to do. Jesus again says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Where did that come from? Wait a minute. Jesus joining church and kingdom. I'll build my church and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Are they the same? Well, we, we can say that on the one hand, Christ's kingdom, in one sense, does reign over all the kingdom of his power. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. But what he's speaking of here, the membership, the government, the authority, the citizenship of that kingdom is his church. And thus, I will build my church and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, you say, wait a minute, isn't he speaking to Peter? Okay, uh, brief side note. Uh, Peter is receiving these words. Yes, I will give thee, Peter, keys to the kingdom. And you know that uh, Rome uses this to defend uh, a papacy. But it's very clear just two chapters later in Matthew that those keys are not merely given to Peter, but also to the whole church to bind and to loose so that even the sentence or of two or three in the church will be ratified with the authority of Christ in heaven. Where we read uh, Matthew 18, 16, uh, if, if, this, if this man won't hear you, take one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector, I tell you that whatever you, plural, whatever y'all bind in, on earth, church, will be bound in heaven. Whatever y'all, church, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I say again to y'all that if two of y'all agree on earth, considering anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. All right, so here's my point in all of this. The center of Christ's cause today in the world is now his church, New Jerusalem. The membership of that church is those who serve the king of kings. The church then, his chosen instrument for the conquest of evil, 
we ourselves in the uh, use of the keys and the uh, in the uh, working of the church, admitting or uh, retaining people as necessary. Uh, we are called elsewhere workers for the kingdom. We are taught to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and our Redeemer is summoning us to join his work in the world. Christ intends to overcome his foes despite our struggles and to bring the peoples of the earth under his joyful reign, at least out of every tribe, tongue, people, and the nation, through the building of his church. So understand that as we are the colony of the kingdom of heaven, we are called to labor and build today by following our Redeemer. All of these lessons follow under that big heading. Second, these, this, uh, this book, these books teach us about living out a risky faith. Living out a risky faith. Nehemiah had been praying Oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant, to the prayers of the servants who desire to fear your name. Let your servant prosper this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Uh, What man? What mercy? Well, we read back in Ezra chapter 4, if you remember from many weeks ago, King Xerxes had commanded that the walls of Jerusalem should not be rebuilt except at his command. Well, what has Nehemiah got in mind? He has in mind a risky plan. He says, I've never been sad in the presence of the king before. And the king saw it and he said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And I became dreadfully afraid. What's what's going on here? Um, Nehemiah appears before the king with a sad face. He's dreadfully afraid. Well, you see, oriental kings are dishonored by unhappy servants. This is a man who serves the king as his personal attendant. How do you think it would reflect to have the king's own man visibly unhappy in his presence? It was part of his job description as the king's cupbearer to manifestly be a happy servant, just like the queen of Sheba said of Solomon, they said, happy are the servants who stand in your presence, right? This was the impression that she got. And, and the servants of the king are to be happy. I mean, you know, what does your face tell you about your service before the king of kings, right? Um, king doesn't get much glory from unhappy servants. Well, certainly in oriental courts, it's part of your job description That you are to be cheerful while you're standing there. You're to be representing to the world that your king is a great man and you are very glad for the privilege of standing as his attendant, at his attendance. Nehemiah uh, comes turning that smile upside down. He's running a great risk, appearing before the king sad, as he knows he is. And Nehemiah is challenged and he replies, My king, live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste? And the king says, what do you request? He's going to propose, um, king, I'm going to need some some time off, a couple years. Uh, I'm going to need um, a lot of money, some supplies from you. And uh, I'm going to need your blessing to rebuild the city. That's, That's a big ask. And he gets it. Here's the point. Nehemiah has to risk his comfortable position at court. Uh... He could have just skipped to the end and told us that, uh, yeah, he asked the king and the king gave him permission and supplies and we would have thought it was easy. But uh, just like every chapter in this book, 
nothing is easy when you're trying to do a good work for God in the world. Right? We're not to say, oh, look how easy it was for Nehemiah. The king just gave him all that he asked for. Okay, Nehemiah wants to tell you a little of the story and say that it's not the way it was. The, the truth is I had to take a great personal risk. Sometimes oriental tyrants just fly off the handle, you know, off with his head. I had to put my job certainly on the line for my service to my God, but God blessed. Okay, um, that's a small risk. Yeah, the truth is, things are going to get a lot worse for Nehemiah. There's a lot more hair pulling, uh, a lot more struggle, a lot more physical risk to him and his friends before the end of this book. But we've been taught all the way through that this is what we must expect. Zerubbabel, Ezra, now Nehemiah. What are they doing every chapter but living out a risky faith? Because, here's the big, the big uh, lesson, faith is not a comfortable way of life. Faith, faith seems always to be heading us into danger, requiring boldness, walking by faith and not by sight, taking up a cross, not counting our lives dear to ourselves, as Paul says. Uh, faith requires making some risky statements to people who may be displeased with us. Faith is a daring endeavor. Um, if we're only interested in safety, we're not going to make any real progress in what's most important in the world. That progress, if we do make it, is not going to be easygoing even after that. That's what we have learned in the two men before and now even in Nehemiah. They continually faced fightings without, fears within. This is what we are to expect whenever we want to do something for the Lord in the world. Um, you have to persevere. You, you, have to take, you have to take a risk. You have to keep on going. I mentioned William Carey last week. Uh, Kerry, I'm sure, expected a different situation when he landed in India. Um, he, he, he arrived uh, from, from London, uh, great, uh, great zealous missionary, having a, uh, a zeal for the conversion of the nations. He had, he had read Jonathan Edwards. He had read the Puritans. He, he had this post-millennial uh, uh, vision of the evangelization of nations and peoples of the earth. And he goes boldly to India. And how many converts did he have at the end of the first year? Zero. How many at the end of the second year? How many at the end of the third year? How many at the end of the fourth year? How many at the end of the fifth year? How many at the end of the sixth year? Yeah, it's the same answer. Uh, Krishna Paul, my uh, seventh year, right? This is a man who had lectured everyone back home in his, in his uh, strict Baptist society about that we had to use means to convert the heathen. Year after year, there's no heathen being converted. This was not, I think, what he expected. He, he puts a brave face on it in his uh, writings, I think. But he, he did preach that famous sermon back in Nottingham, May 30th, 1792. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And the result of the message was that he and others... Uh, pr produced a missionary society uh, in which many, many people went out. Uh, there were years of discouragement. There were others who barely made it onto the mission field and died. There were uh, a, a great many people that were run out of their towns, out of their countries. But when Carey died at age 73, 1834, he had personally seen the scriptures translated and printed into 40 languages. He had been a college professor. He founded a college at Sarampore. 
He'd been in India long enough to see the officially open its doors to missionaries. He had helped see an edict passed that prohibited sati, the burning of widows, on the funeral pyres of their husband. It, it was a real advance. And of course, we look back and we say, oh, I mean, William Carey, um, you know, William Carey wasn't the star of that show. William Carey was following his redeemer, and he was living out a very risky faith. He committed himself, though, to the center of God's purposes in the world in an unusual way. He kept on serving in for the church, and eventually he found that his labor was not in vain in the Lord. There is still a great continent or subcontinent of people who have yet to hear the good news of Jesus. But he knew that where Krishna Paul had begun, that many, many more would follow, for Jesus has died to purchase men for God out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he knew no matter how hard it was, no matter how slow the progress was, it was not going to be in vain. On his deathbed, Carey called out to his missionary friend, Dr. Duff, you've been speaking about Dr. Carey. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey, but speak about Dr. Carey's God. That was his passion And that was what he left for the church. The Lord had given a promise to the workers for his kingdom, you and me. He will build his church, the gates of hell notwithstanding. You follow the Redeemer. Labor for the center of God's purposes in the world. Don't worry, that work's going to be bitterly opposed. But it won't fail. You must understand the times and what Israel is to do. It's ours to follow the Redeemer and to live out a risky faith, and however we are able to do so. In conclusion, in a recent survey of Americans, 80% said that they had a strong attachment to Jesus Christ, but only 42% said that they had any attachment to a Christian church. How can this be? The late John Stott wrote, if the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? Christ died for his bride, the church. Well, I think that is right. Sometimes people lose the sense of their purpose and mission, though. Um, (laughs) I read about this British bus company that received some complaints that the drivers... um, would uh, speed past lines at the bus stop of up to 30 people waiting for the bus, right? Here's all these people waiting, there goes the bus. Um, Was it full? No. Um, The company defended its drivers, though, by saying, quote, well, it's impossible for the drivers to keep up the timetable if they have to stop for passengers. It's easy for the church to get so busy that it can't, remember to fulfill its mission. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, Not everyone is called to be foreign missionaries, right? Paul praises the Philippians for their fellowship in the gospel. This church in Philippi, what were they doing? They were contributing to the church. They were praying for Paul. They were sending aid. They were uh, holding forth the word of life. They, they, They sent a man named Epaphroditus to help Paul when he needed it. They were bearing witness where they were. And Paul tells this church how happy, how joyful, He has been in their fellowship of the gospel. It's 
it's a great work. And each person has a part to play. Not everybody's an Ezra, a Nehemiah, a Zerubbabel. Well, now Jesus, our Redeemer. But can you do good to people? Can you let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven? Can you live a holy life? Scripture says live such good lives among the pagans that though they see you, uh, accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Can you serve others? For if anyone serves, let him do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and power forever. Can you pursue love and unity in the church, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you loved me, and that the world may believe? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer comments, it's not ultimately the individual witness that has the greatest effect on society. It is the total effect of the life of the whole community that makes a fundamental, life-changing impression upon the world. And each Christian has a gift or gift which God has given him to the end that he may participate in the whole church's mission. Right? And that's why Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, that's why they wanted to see the city shine again. It's not the individual witness that has the greatest effect. It is the total effect of the whole community. This is what we are committed to. This is what they led. This is what Jesus is leading us to do. As someone put it, you're not to love the church because of what it's doing for you, because sooner or later it won't do enough. You're not to love the church because of its leader, because human leaders are fallible and will let you down. You're not to love the church because of its activities or a certain group of friends, because things change and people move. But you are to love the church because of the one who shed his blood for her. You are to love the church because Jesus loves the church. And so, brothers and sisters, I commend to you once again, seek the glory of God in the city of Zion. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this study, which has been sometimes challenging, sometimes entertaining, sometimes painful to watch unfold. Nevertheless, we know that uh, even as you raised up a redeemer for them in every generation, so now, our Father, we think with great confidence of the redeemer that you have sent to us. Sometimes our past has been embarrassing. Sometimes it's been painful. Sometimes it has been glorious. Oh, our Father, we pray that the, the king would lead on. Lead on, O king eternal, for the day of March has come. And Christ shall have dominion over land and sea, and earth's remotest regions shall his empire be. Give us a sight. Give us a passion for it. Even here, we pray that in this congregation of it, as each one has received a gift for the common good, so may we commit ourselves and minister that something wonderful and beautiful may be seen here May the glory of God be seen in the midst of his people, and may the Lord be pleased to love the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Judah.